Welcome to Talking In Stations, a podcast about EVE Online. I am your host, Matterall. This week on Talking In Stations, we look at the end of the roadmap for stations and outposts as they have finished their final transition into Faction Fortizars. We look at the winners of the station grab and where years of loot will be sent via asset safety. Our newest host, Artemis Alboza from Mercenary Coalition, tells us of the joint push of Northern Coalition and Mercenary Coalition into Aquarius and how they hope that will affect the war in the North. Finally, Sutonia and Mist Warden, along with Ashtarathi, bring us their guides for running the new Abyssal Space and what the new Triglavian ships bring to PvP and EVE. That's what we have for you today. Let's get started with some introductions. Hello, uh, Tiberius Stargazer, member of uh, Dice Corporation NC, uh, ex-space journalist for EVE NT and EVE News 24. Um, and yeah, just currently partaking my favorite pastime of uh, harassing goons. Greetings, fellow Empyreans. I am Ashtarathi, writer, podcaster, and commander of Federation Uprising. Cool. And a new addition to the team, I'm very happy to announce Artemis Elbosa. Hey, everyone. I'm Artemis Elbosa. I'm from Noir within Mercenary Coalition. That's great. Welcome aboard. I would also like to introduce as one of our guests, uh, Sutonia. How are you doing, Sutonia? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. I was going to introduce where you're from, but why don't you tell me where you're from? Um, I'm from a weird alliance called Felines of the Egg of the Lisa, which is a weird Russian translation because TikTok smart bombs someone's uh, high-grade snakes and it's like a death threat that got translated badly. But yeah, I'm just a, a solo player, streamer, and a member of CSM 13. CSM 12, I should say. Not, not CSM 13 yet. Jumping the gun a bit there, are we? Yeah, he's a... He's hopeful. That's some confidence. That's right. Uh, that's great. So uh, as we said, you are a CSM member now, and you are running for re-election. Uh, and that is actually on June 4th, the voting opens, and it only goes for seven days. So really, when you hear this, you need to go and vote for your candidates. Let's get started. I wanted to talk about faction citadels, and I'll set it up this way. I think this week, it may be one of the most pivotal in years, and here's why. Faction citadels is a huge amount of injection of money in people's pockets because they captured things that are worth a lot, but also the asset safety is going to be triggered for people whose stations have been picked up and moved, and those are going to land in certain areas which means it's going to be a huge injection of money into the economy. So we'll see how that's going. We're also going to talk about abyssal space, which is the second reason that this week is so important. EVE Online has created a new kind of PVE, and it's really important that this succeed, because uh, the last few have kind of not succeeded as well as expected, at least by player standards. Delicately so. put. Yeah, so we'll look, we'll look into that and see how this goes uh, on both fronts. But let's start with Faction Citadels. The deal with Faction Citadels is this Tuesday, June 5th, there's probably going to be a relatively long downtime. The estimate that I've heard is three hours. And the reason for that is every single null sec, so these are all stations in null sec, null sec outpost and conquerable station is going to be flipped over to a Faction Citadel, particularly a Fortizar. So these are the large upwell structures. And the specifics on that, there's a dev blog which UCP wrote, which has all the little nitty-gritty details, the stats for the stations, etc. But the basic deal is whoever the most recent owner is, is going to be the organization who gets control of this faction citadel when the flip happens. So the flip happens after downtime on Tuesday. At that point, whoever the most recent owner is will get control, and it will be invulnerable until June 7th. So we'll have two days of invulnerability, at which point the owners can unanchor them, they can be attacked, etc. It just becomes a normal Fortizar with some extra stats. The interesting thing about this is they come with a pre-built-in rig, which gives them a wealth of bonuses. So CPCP is trying to motivate people to not unanchor these structures and to use them in space. And then if they do pull them out and try to sell them, for instance, on the market, they're still likely going to be valuable because these have boosted stats and a range of attributes. So, for instance, the Minmitar has a bunch of bonuses to refining yield, for instance, which is a bit strange for a Fortizar, which is not a refinery, for example. 
Well, it's based on which outpost they are because each outpost race had a specialty. And so that Fortizar's bonus reflects that original outpost's specialty. Indeed. Yeah. Amar was manufacturing, Mimitar was mining, Galente was kind of like an administrative outpost um, uh, for offices and things like that. And then the Caldari one was research. Well, these were stations that had racial significance and you could decide which one you wanted to build based on whatever your need was but the stuff that they tacked on during fanfest that was the naming of the new fortizars that is new right yeah so the naming of the fortizars comes from effectively who created the first one at least for the most for the most part so for instance the uh amar manufacturing citadel is called the dracos manufacturing fortizar and it's named for the Draco Station, which was the first ever Amar outpost built in New Eden. Just to clarify, because I know that there's been a, le- a lot of confusion among people that I know about this. So these are faction Fortizars, so they have slightly better stats. And then, like I said, they have like a big bonus that is related to its race. And then on top of that, there are there is the rig. And what the rig brings to the table is the is the system bonuses. So that like... Um, so does anybody want to talk about like what all is in the rig versus the, the actual structure bonus? Because I know a lot of people thought that the, the structure itself was no better than, um, than a normal Fortizar. So well, the, go ahead, Suetonia. Well, uh, the, the rigs are, uh, they, the, the rigs, like if you unanchor the Citadel, it gets destroyed, the rigs are gone forever. So you won't be able to pack them up and move them essentially with that rig bonus. And I believe they just give bonuses to certain stats based on uh, the upgrades that the the outpost had. So, for example, some of the more like upgraded outposts have slightly better rig bonuses. There's actually a lot of different rigs if you take a look at them. I think most of them just have bonuses to you know like uh, point defense and a few other things like uh, lock time in general. Yeah, every single replacement rig will have some sort of bonus to the hit points, the capacitor, the sensor strength, and the point defense. The rest of the bonuses are related to which specific upgrades you had installed in the outpost. And these rigs, like Suetonia mentioned, like Astronauty mentioned, if you unanchor the structure, if you pull that rig in any way, shape, or form, it's gone. These things won't be buildable. They won't be available on the market. Once you move it from where it currently is to somewhere else, or if you accidentally pull the rig for some reason because you're trying to install something else, it's gone. You can't get it back. That's the same important thing about all of these structures. It's the ones that are spawning into game right now because they're swapping over from a player-built outpost to a faction citadel. Those are all that are ever going to exist. So these things in the future, as they die or get reprocessed because people are crazy, they're going to become more and more rare and they're not getting any less powerful. Like, even if you pull the rig out of this thing and you move it, it's still going to be a faction citadel. It's going to have buffed base stats. It's going to have great bonuses on it. These are going to be incredibly valuable. The current estimation for the value is somewhere between 20 and 30 billion. And for reference, if you get a bro price on a Fortizar, it's around 10 billion. So you're looking two to three times the value of a standard Fortizar. I like that bro price. Also, uh, they have unique models. They're going to still be look like their old outposts, but from my understanding, they're going to be scaled up to be Fortizar-sized. Yeah, the one exception to that is going to be, well, Fortizar for the Conquerable Stations. So that one is going to be a bit weird because the Conquerable Stations weren't the standard outpost models. And so the, the picture that they have in the dev blog is just sort of a, an off-skinned Fortizar. And there'll only ever be 68 of them because there's only 68 conquerable stations at the moment. Yeah, and the one thing CCP is looking to do is they want to remember all the histories of these structures. So in the descriptions and the attributes, they're going to have little bits of history, little tidbits of information about sort of who made the structures to begin with, who the previous owners were for the conquerable stations, for the ones which have a really storied history, sort of multiple wars were fought over these stations you're going to have little tidbits, and I think monuments are going to be placed in space where these things were. I don't know, does anyone remember the specific details on these monuments? I believe there'd be a beacon in space that would uh, say who owned it at the time when it changed. Anyone got better information than that? 
I think for some of the more uh, storied stations, there's going to be like flavor text as well, describing like some battles that were had over it and things like that. Oh, that's interesting. So they'll actually put some history into the, the uh, whatever this is. It's not a monument, but this plaque or whatever is in space. We haven't seen the model for the monument yet, but it's so probably it going to be something like the. Uh, yeah, it should be. I mean, the, from what I heard, it's it's some sort of monument type structure similar to like the one where you see in Jeter and Amar. Um, but whether that's going to be the same one, we don't know yet. Especially since CCP is kind of focusing, like as we're getting done with this phase of structures, we're moving more to propaganda structures. So it would make sense for them to play more. We just got um, the Sisters of Eve put up their monument um in relation to project discovery a few months back so we're starting to see these kind of really awesome just visual structures in space so i would not be surprised if we didn't get one or if we got one of those i didn't know that that's really cool so actually be structures out there and they'll have a little bit of history hopefully i don't know uh, that's the first time i've heard that but that would be fascinating even if somebody uplifts that citadel and yonks it off to somewhere else that monument will still be there forever says, as the conquerable stations and outposts have been such an important part of New Eden's uh, history, permanent historic monuments will be erected on the sites of the conquerable stations and a select few of the especially storied outposts. These monuments will include a simplified history of the station and system and will be updated shortly after uh, they are introduced to include the name of the alliance that controlled them last. Yeah, that's what I thought, like the name of the alliance. But it would be cool if there was some reference to why. But anyway, let's look at um, Artemis. Is that simplified history of the station. Yeah. Um, Artemis, is that pretty much cover what this is? Well, there's, there's, one, there's one more thing to mention, and that's uh, all of the outposts right now, they give like a system-wide benefit to certain things. So, for example, the Amar outpost gives a benefit, I believe, to you know like the cost index of the entire system, or maybe it, it halves the price to build stuff. It's something like that, which is one of the reasons why goons uh, moved from ETAC-W to 1DQ-1, was to take advantage of that Amar outpost bonus. That bonus is still going to stay in the system. There's going to be a new, uh, I believe, upwell sort of structure that's going to be uninteractable for now that keep, keep, keep gives that like system-wide bonus. So even if someone takes the outpost out of a system, that bonus, that beacon, will still be there for the entire system. Yeah, and if anybody else is interested in sort of the nitty-gritty details, what specific bonuses you're getting with these, the stats of the Faction Citadel, CCP put out a dev blog called Faction Citadels, The Details, and that goes into all the information you'll ever want to know about these. So that's a good companion resource if you're looking for more specifics than we're going to be getting into. But for now, we're going to move on over to another topic here in a bit, which is semi-related to this, because a lot of activity has been happening up until now about who is going to control these Faction Citadels come patch day, because it is an owner-takes-all sort of system. So whoever has control or whoever most recently had control of a station will get the Citadel when it spawns. And one important key factor in this particular time as we're recording is any stations that are not currently in Freeport mode are definitely going to whoever currently owns them. There is not enough time for them to be reinforced and moved over. So we can tell we've got a spreadsheet up right now who is going to be getting what Citadels. And there are very few which are still contested. Uh, interesting. So let's look at the charts. Um, we're going to put those up and we can see that. Um, well, let's go through this, guys. Go ahead, Artemis. Tell us uh, who, you know, what regions will start there. What regions actually have the most stations? So Pravi has the most and there are a bunch of these things everywhere. But the interesting thing about Pravi is Pravi isn't the residents, former residents of Pravi aren't getting them all, right? That's the messed up thing, isn't it? I mean, I guess they did get kicked out of their space, so maybe Legacy deserves something, because I don't, I don't see Legacy staying in the space, but we're veering a bit off topic here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's part of this topic, um, but real quick, the, we know that uh, PL jumped in, took Providence with a little bit of help from NC. They kind of held it. It was a bit early. Test decided since NC and PL didn't have their super carrier fleet down in the south that they were vulnerable, and Test does have a super cap fleet in the area, so they moved in. And they managed to take them all right before the buzzer. Did they take them for Providence to give them back to Providence? Or did they take them for Lumio, uh, who was the sole avenger of Providence? No, it looks like they took them for themselves to make the money. Yeah, it worked out well for them. Uh, we also have a spreadsheet which shows which alliance gets how many of what Citadel. 
And so far, it looks like Test Alliance, please ignore, will be getting 97 outposts and 9 of the Conquerable Stations. If I've sorted this thing right, that means they're getting the most outposts and the most Conquerable Stations come patch day. So this move is very profitable for Test. Yeah, uh, and their allies, right? This is Legacy, because Brave's in there too. I think they picked up a few. And I think some, if I'm not mistaken, did go back to CVA, but um, maybe not many. Uh, which is kind of sad because um, CVA and Providence and all really is at the mercy of the bigger powers. And this really proves that this whole, in- this whole incident, the first takeover by PL and then test taking it over. If you're going to like try to be a nice guy in space, you're at the mercy of people who aren't nice guys. And that's kind of sad. Well, that's been kind of the story of CVA since the beginning, right? Like even when I first started playing, CVA had been kicked out of Providence, but that's kind of the cycle of things. Somebody decides that they want to pick on them, and but but CVA cares about Providence. So as soon as whoever's there doesn't care anymore, they're just going to come back in and set back up and keep going. All right, we'll see. All right, when we look at these charts, uh, we're looking at um, Alliance. Who else are big winners, Artemis? Well, Goonswarm, obviously, they've got control of multiple regions down south. An interesting one is Skill Yourself. Also, further down the list, we've got Weform Volta, and surprisingly far down the list is Hard Knocks. These are the alliances which, uh, less than a month ago, maybe two months ago, went in and forced the DRF out of four regions up in the northeast. So there was like Omist, Outer Passage, and a few others which I'm forgetting at the moment. But they basically, they kicked them out. DRF was also dealing with stuff down south, so there wasn't much, well, they tried to defend, but they were unsuccessful. And so Skill Yourself, a previously unknown alliance relative to NullSec politics, is just third, number three. They get the third most stations when this flip happens. It's crazy. Well, that's the other untold story, isn't it? That at the last minute, these wormhole groups and Volta basically had put a lot of pressure on this region, this huge region that that actually is a combination of regions, uh, the drone region area and managed to basically push hard enough to break it all down and take over the space right before this happened too. I don't know if they took over all the space, but they definitely took over the stations. They have taken over all of the space as well. Well, almost all. I think there are one or two systems that they still need to flip, but that's a lot of work to do to flip all that stuff. Yeah, and they did it. And, And so here they have it. And I've heard there's one group at least that's selling their space. They're not even trying to rent it. They're like, we'll just sell it to you. You can have it. We don't want it which means they don't want to stick around. These are wormhole groups, not big enough to really protect all that space, uh, except in a super capital uh, or capital perspective, but they don't have the numbers to kind of like, you know, patrol it. So it's a really weird situation. I really think that this culminates in the station changeover, which was a big deal. We knew people would fight over things. It's just, um, it's interesting who came out of the woodwork to fight for things and who didn't and who couldn't stand their ground, like PL basically couldn't stand uh, up against Test and Legacy. Well, it's an interesting point about who couldn't go and push, because any number of alliances would have been big enough to knock over the DRF up north, at least theoretically, given how Skill Yourself did it, plus Volta, plus Hard Knocks. So the question really is, why didn't they? And I think that has to do with if they have space, which also has these stations in it, we're talking in the past. If they had space which had these stations in it, then if they deployed somewhere else, if they deployed way up north, then they could not necessarily protect their space down south, and it would be vulnerable, perhaps to their neighbors who they're not particularly friends with. The, the benefit of the wormhole groups is they're held up in wormholes. They, it's very difficult to go and attack their space, their assets, if they're on deployment up in the northeast. The last thing I want to talk about here is the, the low sec systems. So Suetonia, can you tell us where a lot of the assets that are trapped out there will come back to, or maybe even set it up for us? Like, what's that mean that there's assets trapped out there? Well, obviously uh, the outposts have been around for around, t- I think 10 to 11 years now, right? So over the course of time, a lot of different groups have moved from different stagings. It also, a lot of people have quit the game. A lot of people have been part of a different group, and then they've left and moved with the with their old group to somewhere else. Like you know, if you were with Goon Swarm, maybe uh, in two thousand seven during the Great Bob War, they were based down in like Tenerifis and Omis, and they might still have assets there that they've just never been able to reclaim. And once the Fortisards flip over on Tuesday, you'll be able to uh, asset safety that, and they will 
after 20 days, you'll be able to re redeem them in Losec for a 15% fee on the asset cost. And what's right. interesting is that there's a lot of choke points. Like I believe uh, the uh, there's 11 systems that have more, more that make up like the vast majority of where all of the assets are going to go, uh, and they're all of the top 100. I believe that's on the spreadsheet. We can see those um, those choke points. What are they actually? Let's talk about some of those first. Uh... Yeah, so Podian obviously is a system that's used for staging into Curse and into the South because of the jump range and its proximity to Curse. And because of that, almost uh, a lot of the systems in the South, especially the uh, the Southeast, go back to Podian, and that has the most uh, the most uh, number of systems actually go to that 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 station in Podian. It's one of my and favorite systems in EVE. I love that place. Then we also have uh, another interesting set of systems, which is uh, Kenora and Odabeen, because almost all of the drone regions go to those systems. And there's also, uh, I'm sure you know about the uh, the dead zone assets in uh, in 8-3PO. Oh, sorry, R-3PO, yeah. where uh, Solar Fleet got all of their assets trapped because Pandemic Legion purposely put them into a corporate alliance that only had, uh, like, top level leadership access and only those two are people able to return yeah only two people it was a way of making sure that nobody bribed anybody to take their assets out so there was uh, supposedly all of solar's assets which were a bunch of super capitals and all that other stuff there however i talked to their diplomat a few years ago the diplomat said uh no our stuff's been free there's nothing in there so i don't know it's a big mystery so if you're a line member or maybe even an FC or leadership in some alliance right now, and you have assets somewhere else in space that have previously been locked away because you're not in the space anymore. When is a good time to go and get this stuff? Like right after patch day, you think, oh, asset safety, boom. What time does it come out? And is it really a good idea to go and get it on that day? Or do we think the space is going to get camped, people trying to kill, people retrieving long lost assets? I mean, Podian is already uh, camped by uh, Wrecking Crew, right? They have eyes in there and they watch like uh, supers trying to move out and, and capitals trying to move out throughout Derelict. I'm sure that that is probably true for some of the other regions too. Like Losex Lo Shublun, or whatever, I can't say that alliance name, used to live around uh, Candid and Iridia and Ermelin is where a lot of that stuff goes to. What day explicitly does the asset safety begin to come out? When is the first day it's accessible? Sixth, the, right? The twenty fifth. Uh, sorry, you can asset safety on Tuesday, the fifth. I believe you can just as soon as they flip over, you can still you can asset safety them, even while it's still invulnerable. You can trigger it yourself. You don't have to wait for someone to unanchor it or do something with the structure. And so okay. the earliest day you'd be able to pick them up would be June twenty fifth, which would be twenty days after. Gotcha. Should also be said that because there's this wave of stuff inventory out there that's coming back to these low sex systems it's presumed that people will get rid of it so there's a lot of buy orders there by Aerith and Goonswarm to pick up all that stuff or as much of it as possible at very low cost because people just want to liquidate it and be done with it get the isk and move on the fire sale to end all fire sales yeah it's a massive fire sale what's interesting to me is and this is a something we can talk about maybe if we have more time later we want to move on but Eve is different in that you have stuff all over the place. It's just you have to leave things behind or risk getting them killed when you move them. So people leave things behind everywhere, especially in Nullsec, unlike other games, which kind of shows you your history. So you have drakes that are parked in Fate, you know, because you left them there in 2010. And you remember that when you see the drake in that area. But once all this is erased, I fear a lot of memory is going to be erased too. Yeah. Like how many fleets do we we go on with guys that have been around for six, seven or eight years and they go, oh, I have stuff here and oh, I have that in there. I think one of our guys in our own corp has like 40 zealots sitting in a Nullsec station somewhere. So yeah, because you, you go around the board. Wouldn't that be a fun new kind of uh, fleet though where like a bunch of people just all go to one of these asset safety systems and then you just, everybody has to find something that they already have there and then form like kitchen sink fleet off of that and go roam? Yeah, try to break it out. Uh, okay, well, this is a great topic. Uh, it's very important. We may come back to it, but let's move on because we want to talk just a little bit about uh, NC and uh, MC now in Aquarius. Yeah, so it's very related to the station topic. In fact, because these stations were flipping is explicitly the reason that 
were down in queries, at least on the MC side of things. So as we all know, recently goons have been making inroads in the north. They've been up there basically bashing on GOTG. They've been getting some good fights, having some success. The Horde moved out of Pure Blind into Geminate. Some say as a direct result. Others say it's for unrelated reasons. We've got CO2 moving over to Fade. Most people think that's explicitly just to be a bit of a shield between GOTG and goons who were deployed up there. And so when this was all happening, as I mentioned previously, if you're going to be making an attack on someone else's structures, you're taking a lot of fighting force away from your home assets. And so then they become vulnerable. And so what MC, at least at the minimum, likely NC as well, went down to do is they went down into Aquarius, where goons have a number of their allies, quote unquote, it's kind of vague. We've got a couple of people from the Imperium. Can you guys clarify for me, what is the relationship between the Imperium CFC proper and groups in Aquarius? Uh, before you answer, let me just introduce Mist Warden from INN. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So you and Sutoni, I guess, are you both associated with um, Imperium? Um, yeah, I'm a member of AMOC, the um, super capital backbone of the Imperium. Well, I'm not part of the Imperium right now. I was in Karma Fleet recently, though. Oh, okay. All right, so Artemis, what was your question? My question is, so Mist, from your perspective, what is your relationship between CFC, Imperium proper, and the groups in Quarius? I'm probably not the best one to ask about it because I keep away from most of the politics on the chessboard. We're Quarius, and what we understand is we're just literally um, mass mining the system. Well, I, I think gotcha. Quarius has the uh, Quarius Fight Club, right, which is sort of a thing that I believe Asher and a few other goons uh, set up where sort of relatively neutral alliances can live there under the blessing of Goonswarm. And the idea is that they're sort of there so that Goonswarm can just have a few people to get good little skirmish fights with with their junior FCs, but they would uh, protect them against sort of uh, outside sob threats and the groups that are living in Chris themselves uh, don't do sob against each other or obviously against goons. Yeah, and the key point that you made there is that goons would protect them against outside sob threats. So what that opened up is with um, goons making a push into the north against allies, GOTG, PanFam, quote-unquote, people tend to blur the lines between various groups up north. And so with goons making a push up into there, they've got these allies who are weaker, generally speaking, than other alliances in the north who are vulnerable down in Quarius. And more importantly, we've got these stations which are flipping. And what we saw was when we went down here, we started hitting the SOV. And first of all, you have to lower the ADMs to make it easier to hit the SOV. And that involves killing ratters, cloaky camping systems, generally making life terrible in these systems and beyond that then what you can do is start hitting structures so we noticed that when we were hitting their sob goons sometimes they would form for tcus or ihubs the guess is that that's just people looking to make fleets happen get contents if pap links are still a thing get their pap links through get junior fc's some experience but what they really cared about were these stations and in fact we saw outlaws as a group which is in the ogy pocket in Aquarius. And goons literally went in a week before the station flip is supposed to happen. So last week, and they entosted and toasted the outlaw stations and flipped it over to goons. So it was very clear to us that either one goons had zero confidence and their renters, allies, sort of blue, but not really blue, basically content farm. They had no confidence in their ability to hold this space. And so they went in and took the stations, flipped it to goons so that they could do the defensive entosis themselves, or they just had zero intention of letting these groups get the income from these stations, and they wanted it for goons. So that's some stuff that we saw happening. Basically, what we went down there to do is to cause timers to happen when there were timers up north, or generally make it so that goons had to make a choice. They could put their full force into the north if they decided to, but then they'd be leaving assets vulnerable down south. And that was the goal of at least MC's side of deploying Aquarius. It was to make goons to have to make hard decisions about where they put their main fighting force. <laughs> I love it when we start talking and the chat starts going crazy because you can tell the Imperium is in the house uh, writing a bunch of stuff back, responding. Okay, uh, that's all we have time for on the NC stuff. We will come back to that topic as it, as it grows uh, later on. But I want to take a quick break and thank angel level sponsors uh, and they are ingress caldura 
Skeptic Nerd Guy, Victor Roca, and Whimsical. And these guys are our highest donation uh, givers, and we really appreciate them, along with everybody else who sponsors us on Patreon. This allows us to bring Talking the Stations to you every week. And if you would like to join them and other sponsors, you can at Patreon slash Matterall. Are there Serpentis level sponsors, if there are angel level sponsors? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's uh, move on to the second important part of this show and week. And that is the abyssal space, the abyss. Let's talk about that. Why don't we start with um, Ashtarothy telling us what it is and uh, bringing us up to speed on what's happened. Yeah, sure. So uh, just briefly, because I'm sure most people or a lot of people that are listening may be already aware of what's going on. But uh, there is new PVE that has been introduced into EVE Online called Abyssal Dead Space, which is solo instanced three chamber random challenged PVE. So to break that all down. Um, you get these keys called filaments. You uh, use the filament, and that brings you into an instanced area with three different rooms. Each room presents a random challenge. Uh, the room has various different environmental conditions and enemy conditions, uh, you, and each room has one chance at loot. Uh, the various loots that you can get is um, some new ships, new modules, and the mutagens that allows you to change current existing uh, modules. So um, there is five tiers of difficulty. Tier one, two, and three are relatively simple. Uh, Tier four and five will give the uh, player a suspect timer and will look different. So people from the outside will be able to know that you're in a a more dangerous site. Um, Other than that, there are different environmental conditions too. So based on the different key that you use, I think that there's five different kinds of keys at this point which represent the kind of the five different environmental conditions that you can, you can be running against. So five different environments, five different difficulties for a total of, I think, 25 different keys. I think one interesting note about the Abyss sites, which is what makes them most interesting to me, is that they've got a timer on them. You can only stay in those sites for 20 minutes. And if you don't finish the site in 20 minutes, you're dead, right? So as soon as you enter the first pocket, there are three separate pockets, three sort of bubbles of space with gates connecting them. And you have to kill all the rats in the room in order to go from one pocket to the next. In each room, there's a bit of loot that you can gather along the way as well, which is what makes the sites worth running. And if you don't complete the sites within 20 minutes, you're dead. There's no way to get out of there unless you complete the site. And so like for wormhole content, other more difficult PvE in the past, people have taken the strategy of just, I'm going to super tank my ship. I know that no matter what, I'm not going to die here. I just want to be able to survive. And they'll complete the slides rather slowly as they sort of learn how to optimize their fits. But with these abyssal sites, I personally, I've lost two ships just because I went in there over tanked and couldn't win the DPS race versus the clock. And just my ship explodes after 20 minutes. It's great. Yeah, that goes back to that random challenge aspect of it. Um, you know, so there's three different types of enemies that you can find in these sites. There are uh, rogue drones, which are we've seen many, many times before. Uh, we have drifters and sleepers, um, which is kind of scary. And then we have these new Triglavians, uh, or, uh, which are uh, the new ship types. And they are extremely high DPS, but ramping up DPS, just like the weapon system that we get from them. So what that means is, is that w- before you go in, you don't know if you're going to be dealing with really small frigates uh, or like little drones that, that are going to be really difficult to track, or maybe even uh, you know a giant battleship that's going to be uh, more difficult to tank and break the tank of. So, um, you know, making sure that you have the correct uh, tool for the job, not knowing exactly what job you're going to do is one of the biggest uh, kind of challenges that this PVE site brings that previous PVE sites did not do. All right. So from INN, we have uh, Mist Warden, who's going to tell us how somebody can get involved with this because I think one of the most important things any show or literature can do is to tell you how you can play. Hi. So to go into the abyss, as previously been mentioned, you need like a filament which acts as your key to enter into the abyss or so dead space pocket. The law behind it is that it creates this pocket that it's only strong enough for 20 minutes and then after the 20 minutes you're crushed. Now, the keys were initially seeded through uh, data sites, and the idea is that they were included in the loot that you can find from data sites. 
that was seeded on Tuesday. And as players went into the abyss, you can also then get filaments from within the abyss as well. So what we initially saw was a mad rush to try to find these filaments. And then as people going through the filaments, they were getting more and more from the abyss. And now we've pretty much turned into a case that everyone, the, uh, the filaments are primarily coming from the abyss. All right. I'm sorry, is that the end? Is, are you finished? Uh, oh, no. Oh, I was just oh. saying thing. Um, the main did, thing we Did you fall asleep? Did... Are you narcoleptic? <laughs> sorry. Um, the couple of interesting things that have come up was um, that you can't use this filament within 1,000 kilometers of a structure or an ankable, an ankable structure. So players were using the three to four tier, which gives you a suspect timer. So when you come out, you can actually be freely engaged in high sec. And what they did is they were coming out, and if they saw a bad person, uh, someone that was trying to kill them, they would just pop a tier one to three, go back into the abyss, uh, do that site, and then wait out their suspect timer. Right. Um, but it was then discovered that if somebody drops a mobile depot or a mobile tractor unit next to your filament while you're in there, then you won't be able to key in because of that thousand kilometer requirement. Yeah, yeah. you can also use an ECM burst or a smart bomb as well because the suspect timer, I mean, you, you risk it in high sec, but that's something that might be a bit more viable in uh, low sec and low sec ganking is if you, while they're invulnerable, you can still hit them with AOE weapons. So if you just like have like a small smart bomb on it or an ECM burst or something, you can just trigger trigger a, a timer on them and then they can't use it while you, while you have a, a PVP timer. Mm. There was also spoke with CCP Rice. He said that it was going to be addressed so you don't have to use a structure. And then um, there's also the case of the deep spaces, where if you were inside the abyss during downtime, you would actually get thrown out of the abyss. I think it was up to 300 AU away from the sun. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. So that is pretty much a quote unquote going to be fixed. So. Don't get any ideas. All right, so they're, they're still fixing some stuff. The stuff is brand new. It came out last week, I believe. It um, is. It's come out Tuesday. And do you want to take a guess of how much stuff has been destroyed in the abyss being tracked by Z keyboard right now? Almost two trillion. Uh, I three, say over. Oh. It's over three trillion. No. Whoa. <laughs> three trillion or less than three trillion? Over three trillion ISK has been destroyed as being tracked by Z Killboard. And remember, that's not every single ship because some people haven't given over their API or ESI codes to Z Killboard. Okay, so that's from Z Killboard. That's not official numbers from CCP. No, but I'll for official numbers for the first week. For just yeah, unlike PVP. In PvP, because there's two people, right? The the person that's attacking could just be tied into Z kill. But with this, if you yourself are not keyed into Z kill, then your kill won't show up there. And I'm sure that there's a lot of PVEers that do not want to be tracked and therefore are not on also this is a giant sink, isn't it? Because nobody can recover that stuff. It's gone. Yep. Well, it's an item sink. Yeah. That's money out of the game that nobody gets. It's not a transfer between players. If I kill somebody, I get their stuff or part of it. Everything's gone here. Like nobody gets this stuff. It's just out of the game. Correct. And it's some of the nicest stuff in the game at the moment. Well, that's yeah, fun. Have you seen the uh, the price history on sacrileges? <laughs> no. But let's let's move on to Satonia. You're uh, an expert PvPer. Tell us how you're doing these sites. Oh, uh, well, uh, I'm doing the dark sites because they were the cheapest sites and they were the ones that people were uh, the least optimistic about on Reddit before the patch came out. So I always like to try and, like, I knew that they would be the cheapest because I knew people would run them the least. So I deliberately, like, uh, tested on Sissy. I think I ran, like, 20, 25 sites on Sissy with a, a sacrilege, and I figured it out how to run it. And so that's what I've been doing on live. And I've made about... 10 to 12 million so far in about six to seven hours. To be fair, though, the biggest reason why people thought that Dark was going to be so bad is because so many PVEers rely on drones, right? And Dark is yeah. Dark slows your drones down. Yeah, well, d Dark uh, gives a, uh, in case people don't know, I'm sure we've uh, described it already, but 
all of the uh, filaments have a, a unique weather effect, which affects everything in the site, including you, not just your ship, like in wormhole space, but all of your drones, all of the NPCs inside the site too. And so the dark side gives a 50% speed boost as well as a, uh, a huge penalty to optimal range. And because of that, it makes your drones go really, really weird. They orbit a lot closer because of the range nerf and then also they go faster too so they just like kill their own tracking and they just waste so much time like if you bring a healer into a dark site or an istra into a dark site you're going to die to the uh the abyss collapsing because you won't be able to clear it in 20 minutes i would mention that a lot of people are using extremely bling ships to try and run the t4 and the t5 the most difficult of these sites but what i did personally is i wanted the skill books and I wanted the mutagens, particularly like the lower level mutagens, because I was just going to use them on throwaway modules to test things out. And so I, I did the same things Tony did. I went to dark sites because they were the cheapest. And for me, a rail vigilant, like a dual rep rail vigilant, does just fine in the lower level dark sites. So if you're out there and you want, you're looking at these new precursor ships, the new weapons, you want to test them out, maybe you just want to dip your toe in the water. These lower level sites, you can do them, but you have to take into account the weather sites. And if you're doing like a T1, T2, T3 dark site, just do a dual rep rail vigilant. The 90% web does great for slowing ships down. The rails counteract the reduction in your optimal range for turrets that the weather effect has. And I'd recommend that ship if you want to get the skill books, for instance. So that leads me on to my question, um, which is essentially, why do people want to run these sites? What do you get from them uh, that makes them unique? Well, you get the, uh, there's the new ships that have come out, right? The uh, Triglavian ships, as well as the new weapon that the Triglavians use, which is sort of like the Void Ray from StarCraft 2, where it, it starts off doing about, uh, you know, about auto-cannon DPS, I'd say maybe a bit lower than that. But then at the full ramp, the, the weapon gains uh, 5% damage each time it cycles, and that stacks up to 150%, which is 2.5 times damage. Uh, it's doing like better than you know like Serpentis Blaster DPS with like Beam Optimal, which is pretty insane. Of course, uh, it, they're not probably the thing with these ships too is uh, they're probably not going to be very good in uh, fleets, obviously, because fleets are more alpha based and more about killing people really quickly. It, it, you know, if you're like one shotting people with a group of Triglavian ships, and that's pointless anyway because you could have been using a different weapon system and. Uh, that they have a lot of utility highs too, which aren't too useful in traditional fleets, but they could be useful uh, like in maybe like a specialized gang for killing capitals because they have really low mass. They have a uh, 40% less mass than most ships of their class. So for example, the Triglavian battleship only has 60 million mass instead of 100 million mass on average. So there's something that you could uh, take through uh, wormholes quite reliably with and just fit like free nudes on the cruiser in the, media, in the utility highs. And then you can just like it'd be great for like ganking a super or something, and the the frigate can also do like 450 DPS, which is not a joke really, as well as having two small newts too. So again, you know, you, if you've got a frigate wormhole, which people tend to ignore, you can easily put like 50 frigates through it and kill uh, supers probably. So they're, they're going to be really good, I think, in sort of small gang environments, uh, shooting structures, killing caps, but they're not going to be good at PVE or sort of traditional uh, fleet combat. Something I tested during the testing process was how good they were at blowing up structures. One, one thing that's worth noting when it comes to the actual like dropping mechanics of it, not just like why they're cool. Um, also, these sites drop the new materials it takes to make this stuff. So there's a lot of new, um, there's like four or five, I think, three or four new different types of materials that drop in this stuff or in these sites. And so the low-level sites seem to drop mostly like construction materials, whereas high-level sites drop the, the cooler stuff like the mutagens and stuff. One thing that I have seen noted is that basically the blueprints drop at such a rate that the blueprint isn't the valuable part at the moment. Like more blueprints drop than materials to build the things that the blueprints are for. So the, it seems like a, the supply bottlenose or bottleneck will be on the actual materials. Yeah, like the, the BPCs are five run instead of one run, like we've seen on traditional like faction drops. Like if you get a Vindicator BBC, it's a, a, a one run copy, whereas these are five run copies. And right now, most of them, the, cop the five run copies are 70 to 80 mil in Jitter, which is about 15 to 16 million is per run, which is really low in comparison to most other, uh, you know, like a Macarial BPC, you can only sell for 200 mil or so. 
And it's, I think this is a good idea from CCP's perspective, if this was intentional, because the the materials that drop that are required to build the Triglavian ships are the most common drops that I've seen, at least in the lower level sites. So for me, what this does is it provides a consistent-ish level of income for running these lower level sites, which means it's worth actually running the lower level stuff, even aside from trying to get the fancy drops like the mutagens or the faction guns, for instance, from the higher level ones. So it provides a stable income source and a reason to run the lower level interesting gameplay stuff that's apart from, oh, I got lucky and got a super valuable drop. It's relatively consistent what you're going to be getting out of these sites based on the construction materials that drop. So um, actually, CCP Rise said that the loot table is designed in a way that everything has a chance of dropping in every level. But the higher you go up in the tier, the more likely the drop is going to happen. And if it's an item like the material, you're going to get more of that drop. Yeah, so for example, in the tier 5 sites that I run, the crystalline, the isogen 10, normally you get around uh, 30 to 50 if you do get it in a container, whereas in lo- the lower tier sites, normally you get like 3 to 4. Uh, that's into like tier 1, tier 2, maybe you get like 5 to 6. So you get more of the stuff rather than different stuff in the higher tier sites. And you can still, get, for example, you I, I've seen someone get a, uh, a Le Shark BPC, which is the battleship in a tier 1. So it I think you can get almost everything in the sites, but they're significantly lower, especially for like mutaplasmoids in the uh, the tier one, the lower tier sites. Yeah, I've got a couple of mutaplasmids. The the decayed ones in tier one. It's just literally a case of your your gambling of your risk of losing your ship versus having to do less abyss sites to get those materials. Oh. <clears throat> Mr. Warren, you said earlier that you had tested the uh, the Neutriglavian ships against structures. What were your findings? So the when people create ships um, for fighting structures, sometimes it's like an AFK design. So they'll just slap um, MR lasers onto it, cap stuff, effectively put it on a structure, turn the lasers on, come back later to see if it's destroyed. The Triglavian ships are designed in a way that they don't have to gimp their fit to achieve that. They've got bonuses to remote repping, uh, as well as newts and smart bombs. And the main and the main left weapon is their laser. Obviously, the structure is not going to be moving. So as long as you can park yourself within optimal, you're good. Uh, you're effectively looking at being able to take down with two battleships using Tech 2 lasers. You can take down the shields of a high-powered um, Rotaru um, in, one, in one clip of your um, ammo. Oh, wow. That was just two. So if you get a group of five together, you can get your remote rep spider web set up, and you can effectively just shut, strip the shields off in. You can easily hit damage cap. Well, that's that's uh, pretty effective. Yeah, that's just another thing to note on the loot and the metaplasmoids. The the ones that you get, the metaplasmoids, are actually based on the weather effect that you're running. For example, the dark sites, they drop uh, the propulsion metaplasmoids for MWDs and ABs. The uh, electric sites, which have the cap bonus, they drop the new metaplasmids. The exotic sites, which have the scan resolution bonus, they actually drop uh, the tackle modules, like the, the webs, the disruptors, and the scrams. And then the gamma, which is the shield, drops the shield ones, and the uh, firestorm plasma one is the uh, armor-related stuff. So if you want a specific module or a specific something that you're trying to roll, or you know, once the market settles down, there's probably going to be one group of mutaplasmoids, which is uh, more expensive based on how difficult the sites are. Right now, uh, dark and the uh, the armor one is the cheapest filament, so um, because there's less people running those uh, those sites. And so the MWD and the ARM immunoplasmoids are more valuable. So if you want to make the most money, you could uh, specifically run the the weather effect that drops the the highest ISK immunoplasmids, or just for something that you want to run to. About creating the ships, I think, uh, what is the Isogen 10 thing? And and I think it's worth it says uh, in chat here, 2.7 million each. Yeah, that's where the main money is right now. I mean, even in a tier one, if you get like four from a thing, that's 12 mil. And you can you can potentially get, you know, that three times over in a site. 
So right now, even running tier ones is equivalent to VNI ratting. Okay, I'm wow. a new guy. Tell me how to get in there and do this because I want to make that kind of money in ISK. So oh, you just need you... to get a cruiser, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Warden, what were you going to say? Yeah, so, so all you need to do is grab yourself a cruiser so you can go for your tech one hull all the way up to the tech two heavy attack, uh, heavy assault cruisers. You want to get yourself a filament and you want to get yourself a relatively safe area of space that you want to operate in. Uh, you want to have a look, see what type the filament is, what the bonuses and the debuffs are, and fit your ship accordingly. Um, my recommendation is the Gila. It's a great ship that can do the exotic and the thermal sites because the ship has bonuses to its missiles, as well as it can switch its drones out for whichever site needs to do. And it's quite user-friendly. Do you concur, Suetonia? What would you do if you were a new guy? Not necessarily an alpha, but just uh, somebody who doesn't normally do PvE. Oh, I would uh, probably just uh, get that you can still you can find the fit online, obviously, and uh, or just ask your alliance. I'm sure people already have alliance fits posted. There's a, a tier one Vexa fit that you can do pretty easily. Just you know, dual rep Vexa with a cap battery, and you just go into the electric site, and it's cap stable, and you won't have any problems running it. And then you can kind of figure out everything else from there. But I, I'd recommend just going in cheap to begin with, figure out what's going on. And, you know, if you die, whatever, you lost a Tech 1 cruiser, who cares? Even, like, I went in with a single ancillary shield booster rapid light missile launcher Caracol. It was able to run just about every single T1 to T3 site. So rapid light missile launcher Caracol, that'll get you most of the way. Just make sure you tank it and fit the hardeners based on what weather effect you're going to be using. You said you're using an accelerary, uh, accelerary shield cruiser. Yep. Be careful of the red clouds. Uh, I think the blue ones are the... No, the blue ones are the SIG radius. That's a good point. We haven't mentioned the clouds or the in-space structures yet. So, Setonia, do you happen to know all the various effects and what those structures are in the clouds? Uh, yeah, there's two clouds currently. There used to be a third one, which was an armor uh, rep debuff, which is kind of similar to the... Uh, the shield one which is the the orange cloud uh, makes you use two times the charges of ancillary shield boosters while you're inside there and it also increases the cap on shield boosters uh, unfortunately the armor one got removed so right now it seems that shield shield uh, ships only really have to worry about that right now and there's a, a, a sort of cyan like a light blue cloud that increases your signature radius and then on top of that, there's uh, two different kinds of drifter structures. They're called pylons inside the sites, and they have sort of AOE effects around them. There's a, a tracking pylon, which gives tracking to your ship or any other NPC or your drones if they're in range of it. And then there's also a, a, a deviant auto-suppressor, which basically is a point defense ability, but it only hits uh, drones and missiles that are in range of it. Now, is it worth when you're running these sites caring about them? Like, obviously, the shield booster one, you just don't want to be near it. And maybe if you're using drones, don't meet near the point defense one. But should you care? Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's a, a few battleships in the sites that do a lot of DPS, but they don't have good tracking. For example, there's the, the drifter battleship and the drone battleship. They do a lot of DPS, but they don't have good tracking. Uh, so you can normally get under the guns, and that's normally what you should do. But if, you're sitting, if they're sitting next to a tracking pylon or you're in a SIG cloud, they can be a lot harder to deal with. And also, obviously, the, the drone structure is also particularly annoying if you have drones out. It's a very good way to uh, lose your healer is to just completely ignore them. Uh, well, I mean, I guess a healer can tank them, but you, I've seen people lose Ishtars just because they uh, were sitting next to one and got defanged and forgot about it. But you can also use the blue cloud to help you kill small things. That yeah, it's a difficult. good idea if you're in a caracal or something, just to bait the NPCs into them. And then you can do more DPS to the smaller yeah. stuff. Well, that's cool. So there's there's all kinds of interesting things going on here. Yeah, the the other thing is, uh, I really hope a lot of more PVE moves over to this because I hate the fact that you can just go AFK watching Netflix and a VNI and that's it. In terms of <laughs> like a lot of the this is the most fun I've had in E for PVE ever. And, you know, most PV and EVE, I'm someone who, I'm just bored of it. I can't do it for more than an hour a week, like t traditional PVE. Whereas this, I can just sit and run site after site. And it's actually fun because I have to think about almost every single room in at least one way. 
And it's, it's completely different to, say, V&I ratting, which right now I would describe as a, a way to legally bot, but from CCP. Would you say that it has made you a better pilot? Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess, uh, possibly. That would, that would presume he wasn't a good pilot before. <laughs> well, no, that's, I mean, that's my question. <laughs> if somebody like Sonia can walk away from this and say, I've actually learned something, I think I'm a better pilot from this, then what does that mean for everybody else who's playing? Well, that would mean that they can't do it because his improvement is like <laughs> a mile for somebody else. Like well, the opposite would like, be true. You can teach lessons without having that lesson be a be a hard limit, Let, right? Like, let's ask Artemis or uh, Miss Warden. Uh, have they improved? So I think it makes you more situational aware of the environment of where you are. Because I walked, I went into one room. I immediately autopilot locked stuff up sent my drones in, and then I just start seeing the um, auto cannon, auto gun fire from a tower. And I was, I went, oh, I didn't see that tower. Had to pull my drones, reposition my gila. So I was then in a position where I could launch my drones without them getting shot. Yeah, I'd say for me, it's more of an issue of how to fit your ship. Because I was going into it typically like, go in, you over tank, and then work your way back. But because the game, it, it sort of forces you to brawl in most scenarios, unless you're shooting the Triglavian ships, in which case it's kind of useful to kite them. But you really want to brawl in order to get the max damage out that you possibly can in order to complete the site. And so what it did for me is like I'm used to kiting around in the majority of my doctrines. Even in fleets as I'm anchoring, I'm kiting around in those doctrines. In solo PvP type things, you're, you're in usually warp disruptor range, trying to stay out of scram range and not get caught. That way you can disengage. But in these sites, that's not really useful. If you're staying at range, you're also probably doing less damage. And so it's not very useful. Plus, the battleships can really do a lot of damage to you. So I think personally, it's helped me with my brawling uh, manual piloting. So making sure that I'm staying out of clouds, sort of baiting the hostiles out of those clouds so that I can then go in right up next to them and make sure that my tracking is okay, but they can't track me back. It's so interesting because this is going to make better players it's going to make, uh, I think there's going to be an ISK drain. I think also there's definitely, um, CCP is going to definitely let this ride for a while. So if you want to get in on it early, you'll probably make more money than if you get in it later. Uh, usually they let things go for a while before they start to kind of like moderate it. So I think we've going to have a price shift shifting soon with the ships. So we're yet to see how the new Trigavian ships do in PvP and combat. And there's a lot of people been buying them up for the AT because they are legal for the Alliance tournament. I think they're even counted uh, as T1, right? Something like oh, that. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're going to be T1. really big. Yeah. And, you know, it's clear that CCP wants these out there. That's why you get a five-run drop on a BPC rather than a one. So they want these things to be produced and to be out there. I think the limiting factor is going to be the skills, really. Like, you've either got to skill inject up or wait a few months in order to get level 5 skills in whatever individual skill that you want. So I think you're not going to see these, certainly as a mainline doctrine, even if they were viable, for two, three months minimum. For AT pilots, you're probably going to end up injecting the skills. Right. Okay, let's uh, move on real quick. Uh, is there any other stuff that we want to talk about? I think there's some stuff about Alliance Tournament before we go. That's coming up soon, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Alliance tournament is uh, happening in uh, two months' time. Uh, it's the uh, last week of July and the first uh, three weeks of August. I believe right now there's uh, not actually enough teams that have signed up for the full Alliance tournament. Where they're 10 teams short. So what CCB have done is they've uh, cancelled the feeder rounds, which were going to happen next week. And uh, all teams that uh, paid money to go into the side, to, there was a silent auction where you could uh, offer more than the uh, the entrance fee to try and get a slot. Uh, everyone who paid into that got their money refunded, and they were just given the slots. But you can still sign up uh, if you're uh, if you're vaguely interested in the last one. There are going to be prize ships now. That was something that wasn't confirmed until two weeks ago, I believe. And there's been a bit of controversy around some things that were maybe said at Fan Fest or around Fan Fest about Alliance tournament ships, which is probably why. Not that many teams uh, signed up this year. But uh, you have until uh, the 24th of June uh, to apply. So if, you, if you're if you still interested in, now that there's uh, Alliance Tournament ships or now that uh, you don't even have to go through the feeder rounds anymore, you just need to get in there first. I think it's the first 10 teams that 
send off their successful application to CCP will get in. Really quickly before we stray too far away, the Alliance Tournament is a very important point to make, but I want to go back to the Abyss for a moment to talk about the lore, because it's really weird the way that this works, at least in my opinion. Coming into it with zero knowledge of the lore, you've got drifters, you've got drones, and you've got triglavians all inside these random weird pockets of space. And when you go into the sites, they're partially damaged. So Ashtarathi, are you familiar with the lore in this subject? Can you talk us through the background here? Yeah. um, Well, so there's... CCP is really good at mystery, uh, first of all. And you you have to understand that uh, EVE is not the sort of game where the lore is just like, here's a trailer and that kind of... or, Or even like the Chronicles often come after the fact not, um, you know, like ahead of time. We didn't get like a chronicle to explain the Triglavians, for example. Um, we did get chronicles about stuff that has been happening for the last couple of years that now hint towards some interesting stuff involving the Triglavians. And in fact, we just did an episode of uh, Eve Universe where uh, Makoto goes into a lot of that stuff with uh, the sine wave Omega, sine wave Alpha, and Mithras Gate. Um, but... We really don't know that much about the trig themselves. The most we know is is a lot of the stuff that's just in the show info and stuff like that within the game itself. Um, we know that they are an ancient race. There's still a collection of people that believe that they are a offshoot of the Jove. Um, what's mostly interesting to me is that I feel like these trig are almost like a, a magic trick, like a sleight of hand. Like everybody's paying attention to these triglavians. But if you actually pay attention to what's going on in the lore, most of the interesting stuff that's happening right now are related to the rogue drones. We had two rogue drone swarm alerts last year, um, and we have a very interesting character in the story whose name is right now, hold on, uh, Sister Taya Akira, who's a, a member of the Sisters of Eve. She uh, She's part of the Pharaohs of Thera, which are the organization that, told us that the Sisters of Eve were doing some crazy stuff in, in Thera and told us about the, uh, the timepiece uh, event and how that was a secret uh, uh, anti-drifter experiment. Yeah, so, you know, like the conspiracy theorist people. Um, well, she was actually traveling with the head of the, or one of the leaders of the Project Discovery uh, late last year, and she was uh, taken away by a rogue drone Somebody showed up to try to assassinate them, um, and a, a rogue drone literally busted in, grabbed her gently, and went away. And nobody's seen her since. So, um, and then in the game, as part of this big release, we have gotten a large expansion of the rogue drone establishment. We now have a lo- rogue drone faction, and that faction has member corporations. And those member corporations all seem to have different ideals. There's these, there's different swarms within the rogue system and to make it even weirder uh some of those swarms specifically celia and charybdis which are both uh greek god monster creatures um are also the name of drifters that show up in the triglavian sites so uh you're not wrong (laughs) in noticing that there's a lot of stuff going on it really seems like um, there's been this, this thing going on in this area for a while and we didn't even know about it. Um, the sisters are involved, the drifters and the Triglavians seem to be trying to fight for control of the rogue swarm as far as we've been able to figure out, or I've been able to figure out. So if people want to hear more in depth on what this sort of background story is, what we know so far, can you pimp that podcast one more time where you guys went into depth? Yeah, so I do an Eve Universe podcast um, once every couple of weeks. We should have a new one out. But the last one that we just did um, was specifically about, uh, like I said, those chronicles and kind of leading up to this whole thing. But also, I would recommend um, paying attention to Arataka Research Consortium, ARC, uh, who has ARC Studios on YouTube. And they do, they're, they're basically the spiritual successor to Scope. They are a uh, group of incredibly nerdy, lore geeks um led by makoto and they are they know way more than i do let's just say it that way cool well check out that podcast uh speaking of podcasts we're going to wrap this one up thanks to our inn subscribers and tipsters and our tis patrons you can see them in our tis discord they're the ones that are colored funny colors 
I want to also say and welcome our new producer, January Valentine, who put the show together. Our show manager is Sarah Sharp, and our engineer is McLeod. I also want to thank Keskora, our webmaster, for putting together TalkingStations.com. That has information about the shows and past shows, and also our series of CSM interviews, which you can see. And make sure you do that before the 11th, when CSM is finished and closed, uh, the voting period. That starts on June 4th. It goes to June 11th. After that, the decisions are made. I want to thank everybody for being on the show. Sorry, my list moved away. <laughs> Artemis, uh, Ashtarothi, uh, Felharn, Mistwarden, and Suetonia, and Tiberius. Thank you guys very much for showing up. That is all we have time for this week. We will see you next week on Talking in Stations. <laughs>